Thank you for listening to the Institute of World Politics podcast. To learn more about our graduate programs in national security, international affairs, and intelligence, or to support our work in educating future leaders, please visit www.iwp.edu. Hello and welcome back to the afternoon debate here at the Institute for World Politics. At this time, it is my great pleasure to introduce Frank Marlowe. He is the Dean of Academics here at the Institute for World Politics. He's a former professor of strategic studies at the Marine Corps Staff College. He served as assistant for the counterproliferation policy for the Secretary of Defense, and he is the author of Planning Reagan's War, Conservative Strategists, and America's Cold War Victory. Frank Marlowe. Thank you all. Thank you for being here. Uh, I want to thank once again, I want to thank all of our partner uh, organizations that were involved in this debate. Um, Michael and Julianne, thank you for, for everything you guys have been doing. Um, the Victims of Communism Foundation, as well as the Claremont Institute, who have been uh, doing so much work and so much uh, hard labor putting all of this, this wonderful uh, event together. I'd like to thank the uh, debaters from this morning. I thought it was very interesting, very uh, heartfelt debate. I thought it was uh, a lot of fun to watch, and I'm looking forward to seeing what our uh, debaters this afternoon have to say. So once again, thank you all for being here. If there's anything we can do for you here at IWP, please let us know. Otherwise, just sit back and uh, enjoy the debate. Thank you. I'd like to introduce the afternoon debaters, beginning with Micah Uchecht. Uh, he's the managing editor of Jacobin Magazine. He's co-author of the forthcoming Bigger Than Bernie, How We Go From Sanders' Campaign to Democratic Socialism, and the author of Strike for America, Chicago Teachers Against Austerity. He's a member of the Democratic Socialists of America and lives in Chicago. Micah Utrecht. Nicole Ashoff is the author of the forthcoming book, The Smartphone Society, Technology, Power, and Resistance in the Gil New Gilded Age and the New Profits of Capital. She's the managing editor of the Boston Institute for Nonprofit Journalism and an editor-at-large at Jacobin Magazine, where she writes about technology, labor, and political economy. She lives in Cambridge, Massachusetts. It's Nicole Ashoff. On my left here. Michael Anton, he's a lecturer in politics and a research fellow at Hillsdale College's Kirby Center. Prior to joining Hillsdale, he was the spokesman for President Trump's National Security Council. He also served as speechwriter for President George W. Bush and spent 12 years in the private sector in various roles in finance and media and is the author of the famous essay, The Flight 93 Election. Our final debater today is Mike Gonzalez. He's a senior fellow at the Heritage Foundation and writes on national identity, diversity, multiculturalism, assimilation, and nationalism. He's the author of the 2014 book, A Race for the Future, How Conservatives Can Break the Liberal Monopoly on Hispanic America. His latest book, The Plot to Change America, will be published next year by Encounter Books. <coughs> and our moderator, Michael Walsh, is a cultural historian the author of 16 books, including The Devil's Pleasure Palace and The Fiery Angel. Michael and I are co-founders of the Imprimatur Group. Michael. Thank you, Julianne, and welcome, everybody. Welcome back, those who attended and saw the morning debate. Uh, let me just briefly <coughs> outline the proposition and the rules. This debate will last 90 minutes. The proposition reads as followed. As follows, resolved that socialism slash communism having failed in the 20th century at the economic level, now seeks to implement its social goals via cultural Marxism. Arguing in the affirmative, we have 
Mike Gonzalez and Mike Anton arguing in the negative. We have Michael Utrecht and Miss Ashoff. You're not named Michelle. I'm not named Michelle. Right, the only one of us who's not named Mike here. Uh, Nicole, thank you so much. Uh, we invite everyone, each of you to give a four-minute opening statement. At the 3.30 mark, you will hear 30 seconds from our official timekeeper. Uh, and we need a hard stop at 4 so we get the debate in on time. <coughs> uh, after that, the discussion will be free and open. I will be guided by me uh, according to... Uh, the principles that you've laid down in your opening statements. And at the end, each panelist debater will have a four-minute rebuttal, and we will go in the opposite direction from where we start. So we will start with the first affirmative, which will be Mike Gonzalez. Is that correct? Yes. Take it away. Thank you, Mike. Thank you, all of you, for being here. I think the proposition is pretty much self-evident. Marx and Engels uh, said inherent uh, contradictions in what they called capitalism, I will just call freedom, uh, would bring about its destruction in industrial societies. They were very specific. <clears throat> in their opinion, the fierce competition of markets would eat away at the wages of the workers, but also at the profits of the uh, owners of capital. Uh, large enterprises would swallow up the small ones, and um, revolution would naturally follow everywhere. Uh, Marx wrote about this uh, a lot in, in Das Capital. Uh, he said, the revolt of the working class, uh, a class united, organized by the very mechanism of capitalist production itself, was growing. The death knell of private property sounds. Except that never happened. Um, not only was the revolt of the proletariat not inevitable, but it was, like everything else they predicted, highly improbable. Industrial workers did not uh, successfully rise anywhere. When revolutions came, it was in agrarian societies, such as Russia or China. Industrialized England and France did not set up any Soviets. Uh, moreover, when workers were organized, it was not by the mechanism of capitalist production, but by militant minorities who were intellectuals. Uh, this consistent failure in their predictions dawned on later uh, communists. Lenin himself came to understand that there would be a need for a revolutionary vanguard to drill the consciousness of oppression into workers. But it wasn't really until the Italian communist leader, Antonio Gramsci, comes along in the 1920s with his theories of hegemonic oppression uh, that we get the mutation of, of cultural Marxism. Now, Gramsci wrote that man was weighed down by history. Uh, quote, otherwise it would be impossible to explain why it is that when the exploiters and the exploited have always existed, socialism has never yet come into being. The, the, the reason for the lack of revolutions in, 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 in industrial societies is obviously that Marx, as usual, had completely misunderstood uh, the nature and human, need of, of human needs and desires. The people wanted the, cap the, 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 the goods that capitalism offered, as Herbert Marcuse and the other Frankfurt School professors discovered much of the chagrin and horror in America in the 1950s. Uh, but to Gramsci, that was because the worker had completely bought into the belief system of the bourgeoisie. That was the hegemonic narrative. Nicole herself in your book have written about the fact that society needs stories. This hegemonic narrative would have to be completely overturned, uh, and, and a, a Marxist counter -nar narrative would have to be implemented. This, this, this would be, have to be a root and branch uh, uh, transformation. It is this complete re-education that is cultural Marxism. All the cultural, all the cultural institutions need to be taken over. The left must assume control of the universities in Hollywood and all the culture-making institutions. This obviously introduces coercion. Uh, it becomes stifling. Everyone has to be politically engaged all the time, uh, participate in the transition, and then the constant building of socialism the system becomes totalitarian. And in fact, totalitarianism joins economic scarcity and shortages as the end result of communism. These are features uh, of the system. These are not bugs of the system. 
I think communists know this. Uh, I think because they're not dumb people. You know, they know that central planning is inefficient and produces shortages. They know that coercion is required. I think that they just believe that these are worthwhile trade-offs for destroying the bourgeoisie and eliminating individual private property, which is their greatest bugaboo. Thank you very much, and I yield the floor. Thank you, Mr. Gonzalez. Uh, the first negative will be Mr. Utrecht. Is that correct? Yes. Yes, Michael Utrecht. The question of cultural Marxism that we're debating today has always been a strange one for me. I, I, despite being an editor of a Marxist journal, I haven't always understood what is meant by cultural Marxism. I published an article about a month and a half ago called What a Popeye's Chicken Sandwich Would Look Like Under Socialism. I don't know if that's cultural Marxism because it's uh, doing cultural critique of a chicken sandwich from a Marxist point of view. Um, the, we should start off first by saying that the way that cultural Marxism has been discussed in American society in recent years in particular has verged on conspiracy theory, one with slight anti-Semitic roots. Of course, uh, we know that the uh, mass shooter in Norway several years ago in his manifesto talked about cultural Marxism. He was, he was striking a blow against cultural, cultural Marxism. Similarly, the, uh, the massacre that took place at the Pittsburgh Tree of Life synagogue not too long ago that uh, shooter also talked about cultural Marxism. Uh, so this is the way that m cultural Marxism is discussed and used to justify uh, some uh, very violent and vile uh, acts in American and global society recently. Uh, for <coughs> us, uh, socialists, members of uh, people who work for a socialist magazine and are members of a socialist organization, uh, you know, Mike referred to the that cultural Marxism being about cultural institutions needing to be taken over, that people need to be politicized all of the time, and that, that to me it sounds like it's an argument that cultural Marxism is the skeleton key that unlocks everything uh, that has gone on uh, on the left over uh, the last uh, few years or even few decades. Uh, but as the editor of a Marxist magazine, I have to say that uh, that is not how I view my own socialism or how I go about uh, putting out my politics as well as the politics of the organization I'm a member of, the Democratic Socialists of America, which is the most important socialist organization in the U.S. Instead, we go about our politics in a fully democratic way. We are running candidates for elections, whether on the local level or on the national level. We're organizing within unions. We have intellectual projects like Jacobin in which we put out our point of view about what socialism should look like in the 21st century, what we can learn from, and what we should avoid of socialist projects of the past. Uh, and to me, that is is if we're being honest about what the socialist project of the 21st century that is rising right now looks like, it is uh, a bit more boring than a conspiracy of cultural institutions being taken over uh, by uh, scheming intellectuals. Uh, it is a democratic uh, grassroots politics that comes from the bottom up. Thank you. Uh, Michael Anton. Okay. Um, whether or not cultural Marxism per se is a thing, the Frankfurt School per se is a thing. We just have to ask ourselves, first and foremost, uh, if the original Marxist theory is correct, then uh, it would seem to be that all the people with the money would be on the right and all the people without the money would be on the left. That's not the way 2019 America or the Western world appears to me. It seems that all the centers of power in our world, the tech companies, finance, the universities, with their giant endowments, <coughs> they're all on the left. Corporations, through their HR departments, through their advertising, push these sort of left-wing narratives. So how did that happen? I think um, the answer is essentially what my colleague here said. The Marxists changed the terms, uh, in part because Marxism, like all uh, 
aspiring social science is supposed to be predictive. It predicted a bottom-up revolution from the working class. That didn't happen. It decided to force it. There's a realization somewhere 100 years ago that the theory wasn't working out, and we're going to change the terms. Um, I'm going to read a quote here that I think is very apt. This was written 32 years ago by Alan Bloom from The Closing the American Mind. He had already figured this out. He says, Marxist ideology is no longer very distinctly tied to economics, nor is it simply determined. It has been cut loose from necessity's apron strings in creativity's <coughs> role. Random causality that just does not, since Nietzsche seems sufficient to explain, rational causality, sorry, seems sufficient to explain the historically unique event or thought. Capitalist ideology is now instinctively taken to be something more like the Protestant ethic than what is described in capital, that is Das Kapital, Marx's magnum opus. When one talks to Marxists these days and asks them to explain philosophers or artists in terms of objective economic condition, conditions, they smile contemptuously and respond, that is vulgar Marxism. As if to ask, where have you been for the last 75 years? Well, we can update that. Where have you been for the last 105 years since this was written so long ago? Vulgar Marxism is, of course, Marxism. Non-vulgar Marxism is Nietzsche, Weber, Freud, Heidegger, as well as a host of other leftists who later drank at their trough, such as Lukács, Kojev, Benjamin, Merleau-Ponty, Ponty and Sartre, and hope to enroll them in the class struggle. So this bait and switch happened quite a long time ago, and I think its fruits are very fully with us now in an age of woke capital and uh, left, where, uh, leftist power in the very centers that used to be considered right-wing, supposed right-wing strongholds. Uh, all of the centers of wealth, the banks, the big companies, um, those are not conservative institutions anymore being threatened by the proletariat. They are explicitly pushing a much more left-wing social agenda than they would have, say, 50 years ago. And a lot of people haven't caught up. Now, I will say, um, in, in response, partial response to this morning's debate, listening to that, I realized that compared to some of my friends on the right, I'm kind of left-wing economically in, in an older sense, right? I sympathize with the people in the middle being left out of the new regime who've seen their wages decline, their industries get shut down, their factories closed, and so on and so forth. And I wonder, where's the modern left in support of um, collective bargaining, tariffs, and certain of these things that the left was all about in the 50s and 60s, that they've almost completely abandoned? Maybe not the two of you, maybe not the two earlier debaters, but the real power centers in this country that have run the left today have. Uh, and yet, their big enemy, uh, the person they revile more than any in the world, President Trump, is for these things. Um, you know, it used to be common in my circles on the right, the intellectual right especially, to say, I'm fiscally conservative but socially liberal. That's kind of what the blue state left is today. We, we can argue how fiscally conservative they really are. They're definitely socially liberal, right? Um, to me, uh, the, the appeal of, of Trump or the Trump movement or a populist movement is to actually be kind of the opposite, a little bit more fiscally liberal, adopting economic policies, not socialist economic policies, but that, that, that benefit uh, the working class and the flyover, the red counties and states and so on like that, but a little bit more socially conservative. You know, take your foot off the gas uh, a bit on this massive amount of cultural change that we're forcing at an ever-accelerating rate. Thank you. Uh, Nicole, would you pick up the thread and sure. uh, give us your opening statement? Good job. Thank you. Remember my name. Yes. All right. Well, I just am so confused by all the Michaels. <laughs> uh, I, too, was a bit uh, puzzled when, when I saw the prompt for cultural Marxism. And I started thinking a little bit about how uh, many of the kind of social movements uh, that we're seeing emerge today are being explained from the right uh, as, as a result of uh, cultural Marxism. So I, so I thought I'd respond to that a bit. Um, I think we live in an interesting and exciting time. 
All around us, we see the emergence of vibrant social formations fighting for the rights and dignity of women, people of color, LGBTQ people, indigenous people, and of course, working people trying to make a life for themselves and their families. Uh, and as we've seen with the climate justice movement, and more recently with the teacher strikes, movements all over the world, actually, uh, increasingly, these formations are, are interconnected. Uh, they're in, in both in their, in their vision and, and also in their actual networks. They're fighting for a vision of a more just, democratic, and ecologically sustainable world. There are some people who look at these movements and see them as a bad thing, or who don't support the emancipation of oppressed people. Moreover, they see these movements as a result of a shadowy cabal of Marxists pulling strings uh, from the ivory tower. Um, and, and moreover, that these movements are actually uh, putting us on the path to totalitarianism and, and the destruction of uh, Ju the Judeo-Christian West, as it's been called. Uh, the people who make these claims are not only on the wrong side of history, but lack a clear understanding of history, in my opinion. Uh, the long, hard-fought, and ongoing struggles for freedom and dignity of oppressed peoples in the United States and elsewhere are fundamentally grassroots movements. Uh, they are shaped by the passions and goals of the ordinary people who struggle in them. And since the 19th century, socialists have been a key part of these movements. So if we want to think about the role of socialists uh, in shaping thought uh, from the 19th century on, one of the key things is through their struggle in, in grassroots movements. Uh, and the reason why socialists have been a core part of these movements is because they share a vision of a better world in which every person has a space and opportunity to thrive. And we at Jacobin are just one kind of source of working out these ideas and thinking about and reporting on uh, the kinds of movements that are happening. And that's uh, as far as I can, yeah, I'll stop there. Thank you. Uh, we've already raised some interesting issues. And one of the ones I'd like to throw out uh, first is this notion, this political notion, of a wealth tax that uh, both uh, Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders have. So let me ask you, Nicole, would you comment where does the socialist stand on the, the idea of a, a wealth tax? Well, I can't, certainly can't speak for all socialists, but uh, I personally am in favor of a wealth tax. Uh, I think it uh, would be a, a really effective way to actually redistribute resources that are collectively generated um, to actually uh, put in place the kinds of gains we need to rein in big corporations and also make long-term plans uh, for dealing with the looming climate crisis. What right do they have to tax someone's inherited wealth? What's the philosophical justification? Well, I'm sure we'll disagree about this, but in my opinion, wealth is collectively generated. One person doesn't collect, uh, doesn't create wealth uh, by himself or herself. They rely on the knowledge and resources taxes uh, and efforts of a very broad span of people. And, and therefore, we need to take that into consideration when thinking about how to share our collective wealth. On the wealth tax, I mean, uh, I may scandalize some of my friends. I think I'm against it. Uh, on the other hand, the thing that it's trying to address, I think definitely needs to be addressed, right? Um, uh, an old-fashioned liberal, an old-fashioned leftist would look at income inequality, wealth inequality, the Gini coefficient, and these things, see it deepening and widening and getting bigger over the last 30, 40, 50 years, and be worried about that, and a conservative would say, I don't care. Um, in my sense, I see the script <coughs> sort of being flipped. I see 
the tech left, the finance left, which is where all the, uh, and certainly the university left with their gigantic untaxed, uh, untaxed endowments that others have, I think, wittily referred to as hedge funds with little schools attached. Um, they are, of course, against this. So no, I don't, don't, don't touch it. Uh, sacred. Uh, I don't know that the tax on wealth per se, that uh, uh, Senator Warren or Senator Sanders is the way to address it, but uh, one way or another, I think the country has got to get to grips with the fact that this is a growing problem and put in place policies, whether that's industrial policy, whether it's tariffs, there's other things that at least turn the trend around, start to narrow the wealth gap, start to l let the people in the middle, in the middle class, the lower middle class, the working class, however you want to define it, feel like they're part of this society, they're part of this economy, that people care for them, and that they have a future. And they, don't, they haven't felt like that in a couple of decades. And I think there's pretty sound reason why they haven't felt like that in a couple of decades. And that sentiment is what's driving the sentiment behind the wealth tax. It's not going to go away. We're going to have to channel it in a more productive direction, in my view. Uh, Mike Gonzalez, uh why not tax John Kerry's wives' wealth? What, what has John Kerry done to generate that wealth, and what right does he have to expropriate it through marriage, for example? Can I address two things that were said? Yes, go ahead. Uh, well, uh, let me just address two things that the two of you said. The first one is this uh, trope of anti-Semitism. Look, I don't think Horkheimer or Marcuse or Adorno practice any religion whatsoever. Uh, in fact, Gramsci, who, who began cultural Marxism, when he, re, when he says there's a cultural hegemony, we have to change everything over, he was half Albanian, half Italian. He was, he was a Catholic, or Catholic upbringing. Uh, the problem is, and, and, and nor were Hegel Jewish, or, or Marx, or Kant, Marx. or Nietzsche. Uh, sorry, Marx was Jewish, yes. Uh, the, the, the issue is that they were German. They, you know, they, they, they was a continental, they were, they were followers of the continental enlightenment, and they had a very different view of, of, of liberty and everything else from the English and the Scots, the English and Scottish Enlightenment. But the second thing I want to address is, you, both of you touched on this, is that these are bottoms up, grassroots things. They're not. Micah, you yourself write about how the, the unions need to have, I believe you call them the, 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 the militant minority, and you say yourself the militant minority need to, need to be Marxist, they need to be well-versed ideologically. And if left to their own devices, they're, they're the workers, and the non-Marxist union leaders will not get to the change in society that you need. So you know this is not a grassroots thing. And none of these, none of these groups, I just written a book on this, the groups, the, the, the collectives that were, have been created, Hispanics, Asians, MENA, which was about to be created, these were created by activists that were elites. This were, and, they had, and the people at the grassroots had to be convinced of these things. And I really will detail it in my book. So it, again, it's, it's not a grassroots thing at all. Uh, I, by the way, just very briefly, I believe that you, at Jacobin, which I, I do read you, you're not cultural Marxist. You're old-time Marxist. You're Bernie Sanders Marxist. You're economic Marxist. I think you do use, you do realize that you have to, in Marcuse's words, use a substratum of society to, to get a, a working minority and be able to wedge in these ideas. So you're quite willing to use identity politics and cultural Marxism. But at the, bottom, at the end of the day, you guys are economic Marxist, old-fashioned ones, I think. Uh, let me just bring it back to the wealth tax, because yeah, we're going to get into that. Uh, uh, Nicole, what right does John Kerry have to the money of his wives? Why, why, why should that or should not that money be taxed? I use Kerry as an example, but we could use the Kennedys as well. Those are two separate questions. Uh, well, just to pick up on the notion of the wealth tax, uh, you, you, you said you're in favor of that. Yeah. And what is the philosophical basis? Oh, you've, you've mentioned the philosophical basis for that as well. I'm yeah. sorry. Micah, can I toss that question to you then? What, what is the foundational 
notion that we should have a wealth tax in this country? Well, we, what, what is the determining factor? If, if Do you tax Bill Gates' wealth or do you tax the Kennedys' wealth? One is inherited and one has been recently created. I think we should tax all of the ultra-rich capitalist wealth, whether it came from someone like Bill Gates who started a country, a company on his own uh, and, and accrued an incredible amount of wealth that he managed to uh, get from people who were working for him, uh, and, and that is the basis of his wealth, or if it's from the Kennedys or the Careys, or I mean, I, I subscribe to the, uh, the notion that has been put on the political agenda recently that uh, billionaires shouldn't exist, period. So uh, whatever the, the only way that I think that anyone can uh, amount uh, a billion dollars is through uh, uh, hoarding the wealth and stealing the wealth from uh, the rest of society. And so uh, that's my basis for one. So you would say wealth is a criminal act in, in some sense. Well, the, the hoarding of resources to the extent that you become a billionaire certainly is a criminal act, yes. M Mike Anton? I, if I were cynical, which I'm not, I, I endeavor every day and every thought to be as high-minded as I possibly can. But if I were cynical, I would say, wow, there's a real basis for agreement here. Because when I look out at billionaires, they're all my political opponents, adversaries, and enemies. So yeah, let's just tax the heck out of them and reduce their power. Why not? I think we can reach across the aisle and, and come to some kind of agreement there. And I wonder if um, our opponents here uh, grasp that, ex the extent to which that's true, or if they would deny it. That capital, the massive amounts of capital, Silicon Valley finance, hedge funds, university endowments, other places in American society are not held by uh, right-wing actors. They might have been 100 years ago, 150 years ago. They probably certainly were, but they're not today. So if we want to go after those guys, you know, you might actually have an ally in me. I'll, de I'll debate the three uh, of them. Wait, wait, wait. Oh, uh, so uh, we, uh, Mike, you said some, I would like to respond to something, sure. and you directed a direct question at, at Micah. Uh, just, I'd like to just push back when you say Jacobin uh, uses identity politics uh, when it's convenient. This is a very crude accusation. Uh, and I would definitely say that that's not at all uh, how we would think about um, identity politics if we even want to use that uh, term. When we write about things that are happening around the United States, uh, it, we're writing uh, in a way that really respects the, the contours and characteristics of these movements and listen to the voices of the people uh, who are shaping these movements, many of which I disagree with you, are truly grassroots movements. Um, and, and the people are speaking for themselves. It's not about us sort of shaping the dialogue and using identity politics uh, when it's convenient. Uh, can I just respond to sure. this question? Um, I think that the right-left divide is actually something um, that Marxists push back on and socialists push back on as a sort of defining framework for understanding politics because it's often not very useful, as you said. Um, when we think about these intense um, sort of consolidation <coughs> of wealth and power, certainly it's in uh, institutions that maybe are not sort of traditionally what we would consider as these sort of evil right-wing corporations. They're um, helmed by people who espouse, you know, very sort of supposedly progressive views. That's besides the point. I think the issue is that we have to look at the negative impact of these concentrations of wealth, whether regardless of the, the politics or rhetoric that the, lead, that the owners of this wealth uh, profess to. Okay, well, that's, uh, a lot of interesting points have been raised here, so I want to pursue these. Uh, I sense on the left that you regard, as we said a moment ago, uh, the, the accumulation of wealth as a kind of crime. 
Uh, and while you've, you've criticized the notion, the very existence of cultural Marxism as a conspiracy, are you not also being conspiratorial in your attitude towards capitalism in that it's some kind of a conspiracy against marginalized groups who have, have been prevented, actively prevented from accumulating wealth uh, as well, either one of you? Well, I don't think that it's a conspiracy. It's the way that the system is uh, set up and that there are a tiny number of people who uh, get rich uh, from owning the means of production and uh, especially without checks on uh, the politics and the distribu distribution of wealth that, that, that flows from that, uh, the vast number of, of people are uh, immiserated. So I, I don't think it needs to be a, a conspiracy. I don't think that there need to be capitalists, uh, you know, in dark, uh, smoke-filled rooms, uh, you know, d divvying up the pie about who's going to get what, and we're going to screw the vast number of uh, people in society and get, keep it all for ourselves. This is the, the basic functioning of, of the system. You're rewarded for uh, accumulating as much wealth as you can and, and hoarding it, and, and that, that's how the system works. So I don't think it, it needs to be, it, it almost doesn't need to be uh, fully uh, planned out. You don't have to set about uh, wanting to organize society this way for it to turn out that way under capitalism. But you've articulated a distinction, on, on one hand, it seems to me, between Western and, shall we say, white capitalism as opposed to the groups that you've mentioned, women, uh, gays, LGBTQ, uh, the people of color, the mar marginalized people, is that somehow the result of a conspiracy that these groups are marginalized, Mike Gonzalez? Actually, I, let me just address the billionaire thing you asked me to begin with. Yeah. I, I think that the people that we have today who are billionaires, uh, I don't know if Sheryl Sandberg is a millionaire today, but, but definitely Bezos, Bloomberg, these are people, who, I don't agree with them politically, but they created their wealth by fulfilling a need. Uh, you know, the, Facebook is something that I use, the internet is something that I use. So if they came into this, you know, they definitely deserve for having created a lot of benefit for mankind to, to benefit from it. So I don't think that we should tax him and penalize him for that. I was, I was actually trying to, to praise Jacobin. I was saying that you guys are actually um, colorblind. You really, you know, your approach is colorblind. When I read you, you're colorblind. You talk about the workers, you don't, I think that there's a belief in some of your writers, I, I discern that there is the, the, the using of these discrete groups that I'm sorry, we're not, we're created by elite activists. And if you look at the history of it in the 60s and 70s, we're not a grassroots things by any means, um, to, to gain a political majority, to gain a, at least a Bolshevik majority. Uh, so then the question you asked was, was what? Uh, on the, uh, just recently, just now? I'm sorry, I've lost the oh, yeah. <laughs> field, but we have a question from the audience, which I would like to read and for anyone to take a look at. And uh, this goes to the whole notion of wealth. Uh, does it matter that the workers who collectively created the wealth for the company were financially compensated for that work, that they entered into a free contract to do X for Y money? Uh, how does that tarnish the accumulation of that wealth? Either of you. Sure. Uh, we can say that they are compensated, we, we, but we can also ask whether they are compensated fairly. You know, when you're looking at... But uh, who is to determine the fairness of compensation? That, I guess that's... I think we could uh, start with a very uh, sensible baseline of people being able to afford a home, send their children uh, to a good school, uh, and maybe... Uh, 
uh, allow their uh, family to have a healthy diet, send their children to college, maybe go on a vacation, uh, have some savings. These are things that... What's that preventing them from doing that in the first place? They are not fairly compensated for the work they do. That's what's preventing them. They work hard and they don't make enough money to live. And but that seems is, like you have... That is, uh, you said... Yeah. These co these companies are making so much money, uh, but you know they pay their workers fairly, and I'm saying no, they don't. And if we if we just to get to um, your point, Mike, just again about the wealth tax, and we're thinking about you know the tech companies, and well, they made something amazing. Yes, it's true, but the technology that they rely upon to make that amazing thing, much of it was funded. Uh, originally, the the research was originally funded by taxpayers and developed in uh, publicly financed institu institutions and then commodified and used for private uh, gain. I want to pursue this notion of Nicole with Mike Anton then. Uh, is, how do we determine fair compensation? What, what is the, for should the government do that? Should the market forces do that? Is it your tough luck if you sold, let me use the example of a painter. You paint a painting and you sold it for $200 and later on you turn out your Rembrandt and now it's going to sell for $10 million perhaps in your lifetime. Isn't that your tough luck, Mike Anton? Well, I'm going to try to split the middle here and say, you know, it, it, it can't be purely the market because we're not an economy fundamentally. We're a country that has an economy. And a country, qua country, has citizens who are tied, as my old teacher, John Marini, would say, in bonds of civic friendship, right? And if we just say, we're nothing but an economy, let the market decide. And if 10 people own everything and all the rest of you have nothing, well, the market decided. That's bad politics, right? Mm -hmm. It's it's a recipe for instability and I would say injustice. Now, uh, can I follow that command up? and control from the top dictating wages, prices, these kinds of things uh, as economic theory and practice doesn't work. But there are also policies that we could put in place that nudge the market, that push the market, that limit it, that shape it, right? We'll leave it to operate. There's no, there is no purely free economy anywhere in the world anyway. Every single country on the planet does some extent of this. But one uh, issue that I've not heard anyone bring up, I'll bring it up now, now finally I'll get booed, is if we really want to raise some wages in this country, we should uh, help President Trump implement uh, serious immigration reform to tighten up the labor market, right? This is one of the things that absolutely benefits woke capital and the oligarchs I talked about. Uh, a very, very large supply of constant immigrant labor puts downward pressure on wages. This is one of the big reasons why people can't afford homes. They can't go on vacations. They've seen their wages decline, stuff like that. Um, but boy, does one get uh, shouted at angrily if one brings that up. But I'm for that because I want to benefit the wages. I want to see the wages of my fellow citizens rise in the near and medium term as they have not risen by some metrics and even possibly declined since the early 1970s. Well, there is a strain of conservatism that says, uh, you know, it goes by the popular name of but conservative corporations, that the corporations are a pure expression of capitalism. They should be free to do whatever they want. And if it's right. rapacious capitalism, then that's just too bad. On the other hand, we do know that, for example, in Los Angeles, when people are uh, hoping that some of the minority groups will eat healthier, that they put in health food stores in those neighborhoods, they immediately go out of business, and yet there's a McDonald's or a fast food place on almost every street corner in South Central. So at what point does personal responsibility kick in? I'll throw that to you. Or, or well, can I think? just respond, Mr. Anton, because I think you, uh, you sort of answered a question that you raised earlier about whether or not there's common ground between our different political projects, and you're speaking to uh, the problems of deindustrialization or, or 
uh, excess power uh, within capital. Um, and I, I think you've just now hit on the place where we would uh, diverge very significantly, which is that the, the proposed right-wing populist uh, response to the excess po uh, power of corporations, the uh, rising income inequality in, in the country and in the world, uh, is to uh, harden borders, to uh, keep out uh, immigrants from other countries and to say that they are the they are responsible for the problems that we are wrestling with in this country and the socialist contention is that that's just not true uh, that uh, that immigrants are uh, you know Im immigrants come to this country uh, from wherever from countries like uh, Mexico and Central America in large numbers right now in part because of the climate change that we have pl played such a huge role in, in pushing and then that uh, they're, they're desperate for a better life because uh, they're, they're suffering in their home countries. Uh, wealth inequality, un, unfair uh, treatment, military intervention uh, over the past century in their countries. Um, and so our, our contention, I mean, we're speaking to some of the same issues about uh, wealth inequality, income inequality, and all of that, but uh, we would diverge very sharply in saying that the solution to that, or, or, or that, the, that the reason for those problems existing in the first place is because of uh, immigrants. We, we, we would strongly dispute that claim and say that it comes from the people who actually hold power in society, which is everyone from the you know, far-right capitalist to the uh, tech, you know, democratic, you know, capital D democratic uh, tech CEOs that you're referring to. But surely you're not saying that uh climate change stops at the Mexican border and that the influx of migrants from Mexico is caused by us causing their climate to change, thus driving them to our country. Doesn't that sound like a crazy conspiracy theory, Mike? Well, uh, it, it, sort of. I mean, if you th think about this for, for a second, I, I did absolutely expect to be opposed, and I was. Uh, my expectations were met on that question, but I think that the points to an inconsistency um, in, in the policy that we're talking about here. First of all, you used the word earlier, um, if I have this correct, I wrote it down with quotes around it, so I hope this is right, enmiserated, as if people are being enmiserated at modern capitalism. Well, I doubt that that's actually true in the uh, purely material sense. If you look by any metric, the poorest person, in, certainly in an OECD country, in what, you know, a so-called advanced economy today, is, in, is much, much richer than a very rich person of a century, two centuries ago, things like that. If we are enmiserated, and I think there is some misery going around, it's a, a kind of spiritual enmiseration, uh, which has a lot of causes, including from whatever you want to call it, cultural Marxism or this sort of left-wing social uh, policy and idea marched through the uh, institutions over the last hundred years. I think there's some immiseration that's also being caused by this massive inequality, by big cadres, tens of millions of people who, who can look at the economy we've built and say, I'm just left out. I can't get ahead in this world. I'm, I'm going to go nowhere. And I, the powers that be absolutely don't care about me. Um, look, I, the very right, the so-called right-wing capital uh, you know, concentration, people, whatever, uh, capitalists, the bankers, the tech oligarchs, and so on that you talked about, they love mass immigration. Why do they love it? Precisely because it pushes wages down. They understand their bottom line pretty clearly. Uh, and regarding the environment, I would say, look, if we, were if we were more serious about environmentalism, environmentalism itself would be a cause for immigration reform and tightening, because um, what do you think happens when people come here from a country where whatever they're uh, carbon footprint is much lower, they come to the United States, does their carbon footprint go up, stay the same, or go down in the United States with our you know, higher standard of living, bigger houses, cars, things? Of course it goes up, right? This is just 
it's logical. It, it, it has to be true. And just my final point, getting back to immiserated, nobody comes here in order to be immiserated, right? You come from another country thinking that your life's going to be better when you get here, and in particular thinking that your life is going to be materially better when you get here. And for almost everybody who comes as an immigrant, that's true. The question is, is that policy working for the citizens who are already here, right? Do they get a benefit or, you know, do they not? And I think it, it's not working. It definitely works for the newcomers. They're not immiserated. They're quality of life goes up. Does it work for the existing citizenry? It hasn't been for a long time, and I think that's one of the reasons why immigration policy and practice over the last 30 years has become very unpopular, in particular with the people who have been economically left behind that the old capital L left would have stood up for much more forcefully than they uh, did. Mike Gonzalez, you were born in Cuba. You have first-hand experience of Cuban communism. Uh, can you speak to these issues from that perspective? Uh, I'm, I'm leading into discussion of identity politics here. So I'm, I, I want you to start from your own origins and we'll proceed from there. Well, one thing I never have uh, written in my life, and an editor recently asked me to say, say can you start the sentence as a Cuban-American? I said, no, I'm not going to start the sentence as a Cuban-American. Mm -hmm. Who cares? Uh, it's my ideas that matter. Um, I, I do, I did uh, live in Cuba for 12 years. And that's the thing that gets me. How, why do you guys want to bring this back? It's got a perfect record of failure everywhere. It's, it's, it, it always ends in tears. It always ends in oppression. It, it, it doesn't matter what your motives are. It, it ends in, 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 as I said, you know, it's stifling. People have to participate all the time. There's no room for dissent. You call yourselves democratic socialists. But your, dem your democracy, the way you define democracy, is very different from what I think of that, it's like the democracy is the, gov the, 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 the rulers have to go to the people and ask for the consent of the government every once in a while. You want constant participation at every worker Soviet all the time on everything. And it's, it's, and it's got to be, and you want to get rid of labor markets and capital markets and have everything decided by these sectoral markets. And it, 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 there's no room for dissent. It, there's only a room for how do you reform the five-year plan. But if you want to put up your hand and say, no, the five-year plan sucks, we don't, there's, no room, there's no need for a five-year plan, that's not allowed in your sense of democracy. Uh, and, and once you have transformed society in the way you intend, there's no going back. There's no, it's not like, well, OK, well, the, the Democratic Socialists will get in, and then after four years, the Republicans will get in, and the Republic will not change. No, you want to fundamentally change the United States of America, which has produced and I'll be the happy camper here. I don't, I don't think things are as dark as have been presented here. I think the country is doing fairly well, not for everybody, and we need to do better for people for whom it's not uh, doing well. But, you know, I think America is worth preserving. It's, it's worth to keep from being transformed the way you guys want to. Yeah, and if you get a, power, you will do it. An excellent point. And I want to give uh, uh, our friends here on the left uh, some, uh, some, a few minutes now just to speak exclusively on these subjects. So because we want to give everybody equal time. Uh, take it away on, on these issues, uh, on immigration, uh, on the fact that you seem to be categorizing people, and we keep using this term power imbalance, which is a fundamentally Marxist term. Uh, isn't that some sort of variety of cultural Marxism, and especially the way it's used now to not combine and, and unify people, but separate them by family origin, or by ethnic <coughs> heritage, or by uh, income uh, levels, uh, this talk of income dispar disparity, for example, uh, 
so what if there's income disparity? The, these are some of the issues on the right that we'd like to hear for you address, either yeah. one of you. So we both can, I think, just because there's a lot um, there. I'd like to just respond to you, Mike. Um, I think that you misunderstand uh, our vision and goal. Certainly, this <laughs> no one is cheerleading a return to some dogmatic uh, five-year plan-led system where dissent is crushed and democracy is non-existent. Uh, I think that sounds uh, abysmal, and uh, no one wants, wants to sort of try to recreate something that failed. Uh, certainly, um, you know, myself, when I, when I read and think about history, and I look at what things worked and what, what didn't work, and it's, I think the left is probably the most critical of its own history, uh, and thinking about what actually worked and didn't work. Well, we're, uh, you know, envisioning, and I say we, I mean sort of like younger democratic socialists on the left, and people who are trying to build uh, an alternative to the kinds of uh, you know, staggering inequality, and not just sort of material immiseration, but also sort of, you know, a kind of, uh, like, like you're saying, this kind of feeling like you have no trust in the democratic institutions, uh, you have no trust in the kind of people that are supposed to represent you, or trying to build something. You say, why does it keep coming back? Well, it's because people want a better life, and they see uh, the world around them, and they want to have more of a say in uh, how their community is, uh, shaped, and they want to have a say in their workplace, and they want to uh, build a better future for their grandchildren. That's why these ideas keep coming back, because uh, capital continuously uh, sort of takes and takes and doesn't allow for people to, uh, you know, live, live and thrive uh, their fullest life. But isn't this, let me interject a question, isn't this partially a conspiracy theory of, of economic development? Cannot these disparities be explained by something other than power imbalance? Can they be explained by ineptitude, for example, that someone is poor not because he's oppressed, but because he wasn't able to compete in the society? I throw this to Mike. Uh, I think those ideas have a, a pretty ugly history in our country of uh, the people's uh, material uh, situation is based on their sort of inborn ineptitude. Uh, that's something that we certainly reject, uh, especially when, the, the, as again, this, the system is uh, set up to concentrate uh, power and resources uh, in in one direction and sort of uh, you know, take them from the bottom and concentrate them at the but top. But let me ask this question. Who set up the system? Is that not a conspiracy theory by saying the system is designed to let person A succeed and person B fail? It's, it's, who, who would go to set up a system that deliberately Oh, not fails? deliberately, no, certainly. But that that is the way that the system functions. On the question of... Uh, dividing people up. You know, if you listen to the rhetoric of someone like Bernie Sanders, who is the most prominent you know, political representative of this rising 21st century socialist movement in the United States, uh, you will hear rhetoric about uh, you know, inordinate amounts of power and wealth among uh, extremely wealthy people. But you'll also hear a call uh, to people's better angels, to, uh, for example, in his uh, Queensbridge uh, speech that he gave not long ago, uh, to look around the audience of 26,000 people that were gathered there, look to someone who doesn't look like them, who is a, a diff different religion of them, different gender, different sexual identity, et cetera, and, and pledge to uh, fight with them and for them. And I think that is at the heart of uh, this 21st century socialist vision is uh, a sort of, uh, uh, you know, it, in some ways a kind of new, uh, I guess it's, a, it's a answering a sort of spiritual question. It's sort of 
speaking to the desire uh, for unity among large uh, groups of people. I mean, it is true, objectively, that there are uh, a very small number of people who have a large amount of wealth and power, uh, and they are the, the reason that we, that we can't have nice things, but uh, among the vast majority of us, uh, there is a call among this new 21st century movement for unity amongst those uh, different groups, not for different kinds of divi dividing people up into different demographic groups. Uh, Mike Anton, doesn't this just sound like uh, uh, jealousy? Well, look, I'm, I now have concluded I'm, I'm definitely more cynical than I thought going in, because when you said that the current model of uh, our economy or our society is to take from the bottom and concentrate at the top, that's not what I see when I look at it. I, I, all you have to do is change one word, and I think you have it right. Take from the middle and concentrate at the top. That's the current model. That's the model that's been going on for 30 to 50 years. And then redistribute to the bottom just enough to keep the lid on, right? To keep the bottom from revolting. Uh, I, if I may do the um, gauche uh, thing of quoting myself, I wrote four years ago a piece about San Francisco. I grew up in Northern California, and I sort of watched it evolve over the years into a town that now, despite the filth on the street that we all read about every day, it just worships wealth in a grotesque way that would have been impossible to imagine in the 70s and 80s if you were around San Francisco. And one of the ways that wealth, the oligarchs have done it is they, they buy off lefty activists and they buy off sort of the, you know, the bottom rungs of society and who turn out to be rather cheap dates. And the oligarchs laugh all the way to the bank. And that's the situation we're in now and it's, I find it bizarre and amusing, but I'm kind of used to it, that you have to be some sort of outlier, former conservative, or you know, now economic centrist pro-Trump guy like me to see it. And it doesn't seem like anybody on the left understands it, except Mark Zuckerberg and you know, all of the guys who run the VCs on Sand Hill Road when they cash their checks. They understand the business model pretty well. Uh, Micah used the expression, the better angels of our nature. But that's a Reaganist expression, isn't it, Mike Gonzalez? <laughs> yes, actually, he came up Lincoln with it, originally. He, he did use it. Lincoln oh, yes, yeah, so of course. Yeah. Reagan used it, but Lincoln put it, yeah. of course, in the speech. But So uh, to what extent, uh, either side now, are your arguments being co-opted by the other side? Do we find that uh, a, 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 an appeal to religion, for example, uh, from the left or an appeal for income redistrib redistribution on the right, uh, there's a kind of crossover going on. We talked about synthesis earlier this morning. Go ahead. Obviously, I, mean, I think we were, all have been like hedging on the bushes here. The, the abandonment of religion, the fact that the West is dechristianizing, especially Europe, abandoning, yes, Judeo-Christian values, is, a, is one of the reasons why you're having this what Michael Anton, perhaps, and the others would call an untrammeled, unfettered capitalism that is, does not have the, the checks that religion and norms previously had on it. Uh, so I think that th that is, but th there is a reason why the left is, is atheist. There's a reason why the left, why Nietzsche said, you know, God is dead. The, the, these things happen for a reason, just the same, the same way that the family had to be abandoned because, of course, it was a patriarchal family and it was, you know, uh, linked to the, the individual private, uh, you know, ownership of, of, uh, of, of things. So I, I, I think that, yes, if, if, if Micah and Nicole want to make an argument for a return to religion and a return to norms, I'd be very happy to join them. And I think that would be a, a nice check on the excesses of, of an untrammeled capitalist society. Let's pick that up. Nicole? Uh, just to maybe leave out uh, religion uh, and, 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 and talk about uh, developing a new normative framework where we respect each other and accord every person dignity and, 
and the sort of right to thrive. And I think, yeah, we sure, we could be on the same page. I think the, the, we, we talk about the decline of religion. And first of all, not uh, all, everyone on the left is an atheist. I think that's um, not true. Um, and, you know, when we think about uh, the, the, the decline of religion, and that's a little bit bumpier than you painted out to be in the United States, particularly, um, I think what we're really missing is a, a kind of moral framework, right? People want to have uh, a sense of, of morality, of right and wrong, and feeling like they have something to be proud of, and feeling like there's a bigger vision that they believe in. If they got that from religion and they no longer do, well, then that's an interesting question, right? And there's a broader sort of crisis. The crisis is not just that people can't pay their bills, right? It's, it's a broader crisis of a loss of legitimacy for the kind of way that we've organized society over the past 30 years. And that's a, a multi-dimensional crisis. But that you, you started by saying, let's leave out religion. Why do we have to leave out religion? I, no, we were talking about <coughs> a, a point of agreement. A point of agreement. I mean, it was, it was Marx who said that religion was the opiate of the people. You know, Christianity and Judaism gave you that dignity of every human being because it was made in, in, the, in the image of God. We had the norms. You know, perhaps not the two of you, but the left, you know, made us, let, let the country, tried to get the country to abandon these norms, to walk away from them. You know, I'm not making this up. You know that it is true. I'm not saying that every leftist is, is an atheist. Well, I just, I, it sounded to me like I might have been associated with the term untrammeled capitalism, that that was my critique, and I want to clarify. I don't believe that that's what we have now. I don't know that any country has ever had that. Maybe the closest thing was pre-handover Hong Kong, pre-1997, you know, the, routinely ranked by various studies as the freest economy ever, and yet it still had taxes. It still had minimal regulations. It still had a small safety net. There's never been pure capitalism. But we absolutely don't have that now. Uh, the big corporations that are making all the money and, and, and you know, that I've talked about a lot um, are heavily regulated, and they, they're not that, they, they, you know, probably wouldn't choose it for its own sake, but they know how to use that to their advantage by making it a giant barrier to entry of anybody honing in on their business model. And they also have the money to lobby Washington in ways that a medium or small enterprise or network of small enterprises don't. Um, the system is not untrammeled open capitalism. The system is, to use a loaded word, kind of rigged in favor of these places where the wealth is concentrated, uh, and not in a right-wing way, but in just an old-fashioned oligarchic way. I mean, if we could exhume Aristotle and say, look at the United States right now and write another chapter of the politics, what does this look like to you? You know, he wouldn't use the terms left or right. They're, he's not, those don't exist in his day. But he knows what an oligarchy is, and that's what this would look like to him, I think. And let me throw this to the left here, <clears throat> to use that contemporary term. Uh, ha hasn't the left already won in many important respects? Haven't many of the policy goals that have been advocated for the past century uh, <coughs> Don't we already have them in place? And if so, at what point do you stop ag agitating for, as President Obama said, fundamental change? What's so necessary about fundamentally changing the United States? Well, we have certainly made go uh, important progress in key areas that the left has agitated for, whether it's around civil rights for racial minorities or around the feminist movement or uh, gay liberation, uh, trans liberation, uh, increase in immigrant rights. Uh, but we also in this country have, you know, flat wages that have been flat for decades uh, while worker productivity rises. We have, as we've been discussing, unprecedented uh, economic inequality that dates, you know, hasn't been this bad since 
the Gilded Age. And so uh, I think the reason that socialism is back on the agenda in the 21st century is that the old problems are still with us, and they've uh, reared their head uh, with a, a vengeance. They haven't <laughs> gone anywhere. And so uh, we haven't seen society, despite the very important gains that we've made in the, in the, uh, in the areas that I mentioned earlier, uh, we're still stuck with the system that is uh, that's concentrating wealth and power in, in small hands. And there needs to be fundamental change to change that. That is the socialist case. And I believe that, the, that socialists are finding an audience for this case because people feel this on a gut level uh, in American society in the 21st century. Mike. Um, I, I just want to add, I don't believe that we have untrammeled capitalism either. I thought some people were making that argument. As someone, and I will start a sentence saying, as someone who has lived in Hong Kong for eight years, mm -hmm. I was in the streets of Hong Kong in 97 uh, when, when, when the handover took place. It did have, it does have taxes, but it starts at pretty much at a, at, a, at a middle class wage, and then it's flat. You know, regulations were so low that you could set up a company literally the same day, and it really produced, I mean, these things work. They work, they, they work. I lived in two islands, Hong Kong and Cuba. I'll tell you, one worked, the other one did not. Um, and, and again, it's not, when I said, why do you, why do you want to keep bringing this back? It's not, there's no clamor for socialism. It is, Micah, the militant minority that you write about, the, the ideological Marxist you know, mi minority that, that Gramsci wrote about, that Lenin thought was needed, that Marcuse wrote about. These are the, it's, it's Jacobin who tries to bring this back. There's no clamor at the bottom for take my health care away or take my property away, or come, come, come in and confiscate everything. Am I allowed to disagree with my own team? Of course you are. A little bit, not much. I don't know that. I don't know how we would define clamor, but mm -hmm. you sent around surveys, and I'd seen these many surveys like it too. You, you know, you group people by age. Do you support socialist policies? Do you consider yourself a socialism? The younger the cohort you get, the higher the bar rises, right? So it's going up for they, some they, reason. They don't know what it is. Well, the t it's, they don't know I don't is. know if I would call that a clamor, but when whatever yeah. it is, some, in, anywhere from no. 30 to 40 percent of people in their 20s say, I'm open to it or I support it, and that's clearly risen over the past decade or two decades. Something's happening. And uh, that's probably very comforting and you know, gives you the warm fuzzies over here. I look at it. I get a little alarmed by it. But I also say, I think I kind of know why this is happening. And these are people who look at the system as it's been going for a while. And they realize, this isn't working for me. And I'm not going to be able to live the way my parents did or even maybe my older brother or my older sister. So casting about for solutions, I don't think uh, genuine socialism, ownership of the means of production, wealth taxes, things like that, are the solution. But um, I'm a little bit, I'm also not that confident that traditional conservatism, as it kind of came together and <coughs> ossified in the Reagan era, offers much either. And I, I was in Hong Kong for the handover, too, as it happens. I loved it. I thought it was great. I was just using that as an example of the freest economy that I know of that's ever existed still had, you know, still had a certain measure of regulation. It's always going to. So this perfect freedom will never exist. I want to bring us back, back, just a second. I, I, want, Mike, excuse me. I want to bring this back to our cultural Marxism topic, because we're wandering into economic Marxism here. Uh, and this is a question for anybody. Uh, you cannot deny the existence of the Frankfurt School, the, the Gramsci, uh, Lukács, and their successors. Marcuse was... Uh, a very major influence in American education during the 1960s. Uh, and the assault of critical theory on fundamental truths of America that had not been questioned before. But as you know, critical theory is that anything can be questioned and, if possible, taken apart 
uh, in an analytic way that negates its value. So how can we say there's no such thing as cultural Marxism when the influence of these thinkers is so powerful, so strong in the documentary, <coughs> influence is, uh, is manifest, and it doesn't, hasn't that affected all of the changes we're seeing in the United States today? Yes, the Frankfurt School existed. Uh, yes, those people uh, had an impact on the ideas of the time. And yes, I think they did, in general, uh, advocate uh, critical inquiry into culture and art and the economy and all facets of life. Now, to say that they questioned it was not to say that they sort of blindly also advocated taking everything apart uh, and and... Uh, you know, and, and to show that it has no value. I think it's, uh, you know, critical theory is fine. Critical theory is great. It's about questioning the institutions that make up society, particularly when we have a, a, a society that is extremely hierarchical and uh, has persistent hierarchies over time. It's only natural that thinkers, critical thinkers, would want to know why this is the case and start to really try to unpack and unpeel uh, the kinds of, you know, foundations of, of these inequalities. That being said, to draw a straight line from the Frankfurt School writ large to, I don't even know what the outcome is that you are referring to, is difficult, not least because uh, the Frankfurt School and later sort of uh, British cultural studies and the later postmodernism, these, these uh, fields don't even agree with each other uh, and have very different um, arguments and goals. So f that's where I, my sort of, uh, I'll part ways with you and, and sort of uh, say, I, do, I don't see that story. Well, let me ask over here, is that true? Are, 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 or are they not related? No, no uh, 30 sec 25 seconds on the young. You know, in, in, in animal form, Napoleon takes away the puppies, uh, and then they come out at, through the middle of the book and start chasing Snowy. If you, if you teach, if you take over the institutions, and you teach these kids that Marxism is good, and, and you delegitimize de de the United States, of course they're going to sign up to these things, but they don't know what socialism is. They really do not, I, I don't believe. Now, on Marcuse, of course, he was extremely influential. Talk about taking over the institutions. He was a, a very worked very closely with Rudy Duchka, the one who came up with a, you know the march through the, the long march through the institutions. This is the German Revolution. The German, right? Yeah. Uh, he 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 was a professor of Angela Davis, who famously goes around now and tells you know college campuses that ethnic studies are the the, the intellectual arm of the revolution. Uh, Bill Moyers admits about uh, ten years ago that he was sending. Uh, you know, essays by Marcuse to LBJ in the White House. I don't believe that LBJ ever read Marcuse, but we know that people around them, including Bill Moyers, did. Uh, so I think that, yes, these, these, these thinkers are incredibly, and all you have to do is look through the footnotes of the activists, the people who write about critical race theory, of, of, of everybody in a grievance uh, study department at a university, and they'll be greatly influenced, not just by the Frankfurt School, but also by the uh, postmodernists, Jean-François Lyotard, uh, Derrida, uh, Michel Foucault. The influence is very strongly there uh, intellectually. Can you deny the influence of the Frankfurt School on contemporary American society when, for example, uh, one of the principal tenets of the philosophers of that school was an attack on the family, an attack on what we might call traditional notions of sexuality, and now we have boys winning girls' races in Connecticut and is that where you want this revolution to go, Mike? I don't deny the influence of Frankfurt, the Frankfurt School, of Marcuse, et cetera. 
I never heard that uh, that Marcuse essays were sent to LBJ, but you have no you reason deny. to deny that. Uh, but I just I am the managing editor of the most important socialist journal in the United States. I never think about the Frankfurt School. We don't publish essays on the Frankfurt School. It's been a very long time since I've read uh, Marcuse. It's certainly not uh, the uh, Frankfurt School thinking behind the you know explosion in electoral activity uh, in the uh, Democratic Socialists of America, uh, in the rise in intellectual activity around socialism. Uh, this, these are not our lodestars. And I, I, I just find it bizarre that there is a fixation on it uh, that me as a participant in the 21st century movement, uh, I don't share. Um, Mike. I, I mean, I believe you when you say you never think about it explicitly or those thinkers, you, maybe you read them a long time ago, but there's an extent to which though we all, everybody alive, has a kind of intellectual you know, background radiation that we maybe don't think about. The names don't occur to us, but they, they've shaped the way we think and uh, whether we realize it or not. My old teacher, Harry Jaffa, used to love to quote a line from, I think it was John Maynard Keynes, who says, you know, even the most uh, eminent economist thinks that he's coming up with a new idea when really he's you know, reinterpreting third hand the ideas of some scribbler from a couple generations back, and he doesn't even know it. Um, to direct answer to your question, Michael, of course, yes, it was influential, but all of these kinds of trends and influences, there's never one cause, right? It's not monocausal. So the Frankfurt School is getting active, I think, in the 20s, right? Well, Charles Beard has already written an economic history of the United States by then, which is a complete Marxist attack on the foundations of the country, calling the founding principles a lie and a scam and things like that. Um, Becker, I forgot exactly when he wrote uh, the um, <coughs> his book on his famous, Carl Becker, his famous book on the Declaration of Independence, where he also calls it 22. Okay, Steve Hayward is here, ladies and gentlemen. Um, same thing. You can't say this came from, from them. It, there are currents that are maybe flowing at the same time, cross currents. There's a lot of overlap. Well, You've got to go back further, though. Well, certainly during the Woodrow Wilson administration, you had an overt attack on the Constitution. Right. Uh, Nicole. I'd just like to say something on this uh, fear of indoctrination. I think it's interesting, uh, this, this idea that we just sort of, you know, are spoon-fed these ideas from our professors and we just kind of blindly uh, absorb them and, and they shape our, our worldview. I, I think you've, Mike, probably read more Frankfurt School than I have, uh, and you hold the views that you do. I got my PhD up the road at uh, Johns Hopkins and we read much more Adam Smith uh, in, in grad school than, than Karl Marx, right? Uh, the idea is to allow us to be critical thinkers and to read people that we disagree with and to formulate our own opinions. And yes, that is uh, certainly going to be shaped by the people that we admire, our teachers, if we admire them. But it's also, we are also intelligent, uh, free-thinking humans uh, and, we, and we can develop our own ideas. And, and reading and, and studying people that we disagree with, there's no better way to understand understand your own position. So I, I think that we need to be cautious about making uh, stories that hinge on indoctrination. Well, I, look, I went to college a long time ago at a liberal place, and I've really never been anywhere but liberal places for the most part. And it was, in a way, this is a very Grandpa Simpson kind of thing to say, but it was different then. So I'm in a liberal place, and I have all these liberal professors, but if I wanted to write a, a conservative paper critical of what they were teaching or an assignment, uh, nobody ever held it against me, and I didn't really necessarily feel indoctrinated. Now, I'm still around colleges. I teach college now, a, an, a, an overtly conservative college, but I'm also around a lot of college kids and grad students. And um, you can call this anecdotal if you want, but it's not therefore unspecific. 
I only hear one thing from people, which is it's completely different now. We're much more, it's, it's, it's straight up indoctrination. The quality of the readings has gone down. It's not even this original, you know, the, the original Frankfurt School. I mean, these are serious thinkers, whatever you think of them, that we've named. It's, it's, it's two, three derivatives downstream from that and, and much more simplified and silly. And students are, at least the ones who complain to me, are not happy about it. And what about the 85, 95% of the ones I never talk to? I wouldn't be so quick to dismiss the notion that they're actually getting indoctrinated and walking out without really questioning what they've been ta taught. Let's put it in this context, uh, to, and then we'll uh, take these responses. Uh, on the right, people see the constant pressure for change as an attack on them personally. Uh, I think it's often underestimated by the left how personally Americans take having some of these things overthrown, overturned, for what appears to be no reason whatsoever. And yet at the same time, uh, we certainly agree with this kind of uh, quasi-Christian notion of helping our fellow man. Much of the left's rhetoric is couched in Christian symbolism minus the Christianity. Uh, this is, it seems to me, the essence of this cultural Marxism discussion that we're having, which we've started out by denying exists, but I think we're now getting to where we think it does exist, Mike? Uh, well, I belong to a 2,000-year-old institution, the Catholic Church. Yeah. I understand the power of uh, indoctrination, litany. I know why I get up every Sunday and say I believe in one church, God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. I, uh, and believe me, there is no, it's not a coincidence that it is the Catholic countries of Europe, Italy, Spain, and France, where the Communist Party really did have the greatest uh, power and they got 20, 30% at one point, and in Protestant Europe, uh, much less so. Now, uh, I lost my train of thought. Uh, I'm having a, 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 um, a moment here. Um, I was. Well, we're just talking about the. Does it cultural Marxism? What with this whole discussion for the last 30 minutes has really been showing the, the influence of, of, of philosophical thought and how it's actively changed the country. Yeah, no, I mean, absolutely. That, I mean, that's the, that's the thing, is that obviously, Nicole, if the students are hearing only one side of the argument, are hearing only a Marxist explanation, and, and if we, you know, all the, and by the way, Howard Zinn's the history, People's History of the United States is still, like, number, it's still in the top 10 in political books. It was published in 1980, and if you go on Amazon, why is that? Because it's taught put to kids starting in junior high, high school, and definitely in college. So, I mean, that is, that is indoctrination when I have, I mean, plain and simple. I don't know how you can deny that. But I want to get back to this notion that uh, on the right, they feel under attack by these ideas. Uh, Mike, can you pick that? Under attack by cultural, I mean. By, by cultural change, yes, by the rapid pace. Of well, look, the, the people who, you mentioned the progressives. I mean, like I said, these things have very deep roots. Um, at least in the beginning, most of these thinkers are actually pretty explicit. We think America's bad. The founding principles are bad. The Declaration of Independence is either a sham, right, and they knew it was a trick they were playing on you, or they were just dumb and they got it all wrong and we know better, right? They're, they're, they're open about this, saying we're going to attack you. Um, over time, uh, certain thinkers, writers, start to get more and more coy about it. But if you dig in, you do the research, you realize it's fairly explicit. So, you know, I feel sort of gaslit if someone's going to say to me, oh, we're not attacking your ideas. And I can, like, quote these texts and go, 
you know, what about that? I mean, it says you are. So what are you talking about? Well, it's not me. I don't even remember reading these guys. But again, what's the background radiation? Um, you said, you used the phrase earlier, the wrong side of history. Well, where does that come from, right? Ultimately, it's a Hegelian thought transmitted in part through Marx, transmitted in the 20th century through Kojev. And all the students, this massive amount of students that he taught, almost all of whom ended up on the left. At a, at a, he taught at a Hegel seminar, the who's who of all the Western European and continental intellectuals of the 20th century, right? That's what gets into the background noise. Now, I actually don't believe there is a right or a wrong side to history. I believe that there's a, a good and bad, right and wrong, that are permanent and exist by nature. So did the American founders, right? But it's, I find it, um, it's, you know, whether we specifically remember where we got the idea or where we didn't or what we read or what we didn't, um, depending on people's educations, their thought can go in a completely different direction. And Hegel's ideas, Kojev's ideas, are not ultimately compatible with the way the American founders saw justice, the good, right, truth, and the way I see it. So it's hard for me not to say that these ideas are attacking the, the metaphysical foundations of what I, I hold most dearly and, and of the country. Uh, the country that they're based on. Yes. Yeah, so before we go into our final comments, now do either of you like to address this issue of the resentment that uh, a constant barrage of leftist ideas have on the much, much larger body politic? And, well, and to also what extent you've been successful in moving the social and economic needle uh, of your own particular. Before you say anything, Mike, I just want to respond to this. Um, these attacks on the founding fathers and the principles of um, American society. Uh, I think that, of course, no one is denying that the left has been extremely critical of the power dynamics and hierarchies that are, you know, reproduced and evident throughout the history of the United States. The founding fathers uh, were how we're slave owners, right? Uh, we think about the, the kind of rights that existed for only a very small group of people at that time in our history. And of course, we should be critical and, and strive for something better and say that everyone should uh, in, enjoy uh, the ability uh, and opportunities to thrive. That, that goes without saying. And when we keep saying indoctrination, uh, it's, you know, it's, you can say indoctrination, or you can say that people just uh, learn and read, and they are taught things. Just as you know, you say you grew up in the Catholic Church, you know, and you teach. If you have children, I don't know if you do. I have children. I teach them things, and I have my own moral framework. I mean, that's part of uh, passing on knowledge uh, to the next generation, right? We teach our children what we believe in, and you know, I, I don't. This, the idea that only on the left is there this kind of residual conspiracy uh, of ideas throughout history and that, that, that doesn't exist for uh, the sort of right-wing right, right ideas is, is also uh, seems improbable. All right, this leads us into our final oh, remarks. Oh, well, you well, I was just briefly on your original question about social change. Yeah, it has to be brief because we're running up, up against time. I'll just say very briefly that uh, I think you're correct to note that sometimes people perceive the, the uh, various forms of social change as personal attacks. But the left case is that life is better for everyone when we're not clinging to these personal power hierarchies that are, come from being white, from being a man, uh, et cetera, and, and, and view each other as sort of uh, 
a part of a common project and, and, and not people to have domination and hierarchies over. That's our case. Okay, let's begin now with the second negative. Uh, was that you, Nicole? Yes. Yes, would you, go, you have four minutes, please. Okay, I don't think I need four minutes because I've talked plenty. Um, but I will say just a couple things. I think in listening to both of you, um, and, and knowing Micah as I do, I think that there is some common ground in a respect for critical thinking and for really trying to understand the position uh, of people whose you know, political viewpoints might be different from yours. And also, you know, if we're thinking about building uh, a movement that's, that's grounded in working people, we need to listen to their voices, right? And listen to uh, you know, what people want and, and how they feel about the world. So if we're thinking about you know, grievances felt by you know, regular folks uh, who uh, uh, you know, ascribe themselves as sort of a right uh, wing politics, then that's important. And we should, you know, figure out a way uh, to, you know, make life better for everyone, not just people who agree with us politically. Michael Anton. I just, first, I want to briefly defend the American founders. Um, okay, so you mentioned slavery. Of course, you have to mention slavery, the, you know, the, the original sin of, of the United States. But uh, as a fellow grad student of mine once put it, I thought rather powerfully, he said, uh, second only to the family, Slavery is the oldest institution in human history. It's been around forever. You also mentioned rights. Um, nobody was talking about rights outside of political philosophy books in a real political context until the American founders declared that human beings' equal individual natural rights were the only legitimate basis for rule. They did that. They blazed that trail. Uh, I believe if you have a close reading of Aristotle's politics, a close reading of Aquinas on slavery, you read it very, very closely there, surface acceptance conceals an esoteric rejection that they have to conceal because of the society that they live in. Founders say very bluntly, all men are created equal, four score and nine years later, slavery is gone from the, from the North American, or from the United States, from the North American continent. That is an achievement. When you criticize the founding, I mean, I mean, it's one thing to criticize the founding for its shortcomings, I think that's justifiable, but what I hear a lot of times is just a complete delegitimation where I think they absolutely deserve credit because the rights, the human dignity, the things you want to talk about, if these things are real, they would exist in nature with or without the American founding, but they still have to be implemented in the real world, and the American founders were the first to even try to do that, and I think they're still the most successful. Um, the second point I would make is when you ascribed privilege, per se, you, you know, to race, sex, et cetera. That's very cult Marx to me. I, I mean, Marx Marx, I don't know that he would say that. To him, privilege is a matter of capital accumulation and your power within society. Um, you know, laid off coal miners or steel workers or something, they may be male and they may be, be white, but they don't feel particularly privileged if they haven't had a job for the last 20 years and seen their wages decline and their savings get spent down and they have no pension. Um, and that's the opposite. That's a kind of cult Marx, cult Marx division that you were talking about. That's not bringing people together. I think uh, a much better way to bring people together, the twofold way, in my view, is on, uh, along the founders' ideas of common, equal natural rights and common citizenship, and then an economic agenda that would be fairly centrist, you know, let's call it even bipartisan, that would take uh, steps with industrial policy, tariffs, tax policy, things like that, without actual confiscation and redistribution to reduce income inequality. That's the kind of uh, future politics I would like to see. And I think uh, it could be possible to build a 55 60% governing majority on that platform if, uh, if anybody could figure out a way to do it. Micah. In direct response to that, just to be clear, I wasn't arguing for a politics based on 
focusing on privileges. I agree with you that the laid-off coal miner in West Virginia, you know, for, for him, the uh, the wages of whiteness don't—they're—they're uh, they're not too high. They won't pay the bills. Um, I was just responding to the the, the question of uh, social change uh, being felt as a personal attack on people, and, and recognizing that uh, we can move beyond that in a common project. And I think that our politics in the 21st century, uh, the rising socialist movement that uh, we're a part of, uh, they're responding to uh, real crises and, and the resurgence in interest in our politics, uh, our responses to constant uh, imperialist war, persistent inequalities of climate catastrophe, all of that are, are, are sort of objective facts. Uh, and, and it's not because someone laid, uh, uh, you know, laid siege to cultural institutions uh, 50 or however many years ago uh, that are that they're finally the seeds are finally sprouting now it's that uh, there are an, a number of really grave social crises in this country uh, and socialists are uh, seem to be set up uh, pretty well to solve them in many people's minds millions of people's minds at this point uh, so that that is where our uh, politics come from that's what they're rooted in and that's how we're going to go forward fighting for them Mike Gonzalez yeah yes <clears throat> um, you brought up earlier the, the, the fact that the left says, well, we're, we're actually taking a page off of Christianity and, and that we want to um, uh, have charitable, be charitable and have equality. But Christianity at bottom is based on that, uh, on, on that bargain, forgiving my trespasses as, we, as I forgive those who trespass against me. Marxism is built on exactly the opposite, on, on, on stoking resentment, on stoking grievances. Identity politics, cultural Marxism is built on this. Uh, it, you know, it, it, again, Gramsci, Marcuse, here is Gramsci. Every revolution has been preceded by an intense labor of criticism, by the diffusion of culture, by the spread of idea among masses of men who are at first resistant and to think of solving their own immediate economic and political problems first, who, ha who have no ties of solidarity with others of the same condition. What the, what the revolutionary vanguard that I think you may represent does is, is try to instill the, the sense of grievance where, where we have what has been, what we know today as a culture of victimhood, where you get your, your value not from, uh, from, from your achievements or your trades, but from the fact that you can claim victimhood. And that, I think, is very deleterious for society, and it is meant to, to, do, to introduce this, first to tear away at the American ideals of small government, and going back to the founding, back up what Michael said, it's no coincidence that Lincoln says, why did Jefferson put in all men are created equal? He had no need to put that phrase in there to defeat the British. He put it there for somebody like me to come along and do what I am doing. And why does uh, MOK go to, uh, to the mall and say, I'm here to cash a promissory note. This promissory note comes from the Declaration of Independence. These ideas is what liberated America. It's what helps us solve our problems. When you tear down these ideas, you're tearing down the reason why people come here. And at the end of the day, it is that that decides the case. Nobody leaves a mass communist, uh, uh, capitalist democracies and goes to live in communist countries. That doesn't happen. That's never happened. It's always the other way around. People flee communism. They have to be stopped by walls. They have to be stopped by, by guards. They come to democracies. It, pe people voting with their feet is all the argument we need to know what system works and what system is a complete failure. Thank you very much. We have a couple of minutes left. 
if anyone has a last final thought that he or she would I would like, like to, to just say uh, something about um, your points, Mike. Uh, I, no one... Um, no one is interested in tearing down, uh, you know, the the lofty values and good ideas that were present at the founding of this country. That's that's not what my point was. It's easy to say that because it's an easy way to tar the left, but it's not true. And I think this idea that you know socialists are just about instilling victimhood is also an unfair smear. It's about giving people uh, the, the, in, the analytical tools uh, to understand their situation, but it's also about building solidarity and, and giving people a sense of their power and that uh, if they uh, can connect with other people like them, ordinary people, and you know, raise their voice together, that they can make change uh, to make their life together, uh, uh, better together. Mike, do you have a last um, word? I you could end on a light note if you think that would help <laughs> with a quote. Uh, I hope oh, it's I really funny. It. It's, I think it's pretty good. It's okay. Tom Wolfe. So uh, we're, we, we started, I'm going to go back to where we began, right, which is, as, as Mike said, the revolution didn't happen because the proletariat didn't rise up. Why didn't they rise up? Well, it turns out Marxist theory and a lot of the Marxists misjudged the character. This is Wolfe describing this in the mid 20th century. It says, on top of that, we, meaning Western society broadly, created an affluence that reached clear down to the level of mechanics and tradesmen on a scale that would have made the Sun King blink. So that on any given evening, even a neo-fabulist or a minimalist electrician or air conditioner mechanic or burglar alarm repairman might very well be in St. Kitts or Barbados or Puerto Vallarta wearing a Harry Belafonte cane cutter shirt open to the sternum, the better to reveal the gold chains twinkling in his chest hair while he and his third wife sit on the terrace and have a little designer water before dinner. In other words, when the working class essentially got some money, what did they do? They went out and they bought big cars and motorcycles and they spent it. They didn't decide they, they, were, they were sort of happy that the revolution never came because the revolutionaries, or at least the theorists of the revolution, misjudged the people that they were ostensibly leading. And that's why you need that vanguard. Marcuse says that in One Dimensional Man. I'm going to send you a copy. Marcuse says, you know, says, this system works. It, it, it satisfies their needs. And he's horrified by this. Uh, yes, let me just sum up now in, the, in our last minute or two. I think it's a very stimulating debate. And I think, thank all four of you. Uh, for your interaction and, and well thought out remarks. Uh, I think we've, we've interestingly and perhaps surprisingly found a possible several points of intersection. Uh, the wealth tax that uh, Michael <laughs> Anton uh, defended and I... Well, 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 well I, I'll be against the three of them. I personally agree with him on this. Uh, I merely sympathize with agree? it. You agree? On the wealth tax? Oh, he agrees with me. Absolutely. Yes, in terms in terms of unearned uh, income that you married. Wait, who do you agree with? With Mike Anton. Oh, yeah. So I'm, I'm just saying that is one area that there is possible uh, crossover. S the uh, the leftist defense of certain social programs, uh, however aping the morals of Christianity, uh, have certainly now found an institutional home in the United States government. Uh, the questions that I think remain for all of us to think about. Uh, is the reliance on buzzwords on the left, such as hierarchy, power, uh, the, the, the atomization of the electorate into groups um, that seems to be to diminish the common humanity and still relies somewhat on a conspiracy theory, which, according to the left on the right, we have the conspiracy theory of uh, cultural Marxism. So both sides seem to still be wary of each other, uh, somewhat resentful. I don't think that we've changed 
any minds in terms of where people stand, but perhaps we've opened up some paths for a spirited and, and frank and civil discussion, which I would like to thank you all for very much and thank the audience for participating as well. Thank you very much, everyone. Thank you so much. I'd like once again to thank IWP for having us. We so appreciate being here. I'd also like to thank our sponsors, the Claremont Institute, the uh, Victims of Communism Memorial Fund, and also we want to thank the Venda for providing the artifacts that we have. If you haven't seen them, we have really interesting artifacts uh, from the Cold War Museum in Los Angeles, the Venda, and Michael. Thank you. Thank you, everyone, for coming. And now we'll join Carmen in the spin room. Hello, I'm Carmen Tyler with the Impernata Group, and I'm standing here with Dr. Frank Marlowe with IWP. He is the dean. Nice for you to be here. Thank you very much. <laughs> nice. Um, so I wanted to talk to you about your role here at IWP. You are the dean, but you also teach students as well. You have classes. I do. It's it's my my job here is sort of twofold. I do get the the, the fun part of the job is spending my time in the classroom with the, the students. Uh, I teach. A, right now I'm teaching the doctoral students uh, a course in strategy and national strategy, which has been a lot of fun. They're, mm -hmm. they're tremendously talented students, and it's, it's a small group, so you really get to spend a lot of time getting to know them and, and enjoy them. And, and you really get to see what remarkable individuals we get to bring in here. And so it's, it's, it's a joy. It's, uh, it's nice to kind of recharge the batteries and, and do the teaching. Yeah. Um, and so that's uh, that's the fun part of the job. And then the the other part is you know it's the the administrative and uh, overseeing the the faculty. And and I'm very fortunate. My faculty is tremendous. We have so many people, so much expertise, so much knowledge of the real world. And so being able to to offer them to the students and to talk to the students about them and to make them available to the students is great. It, it's part of the mission, right? It's part of us reaching out to. Uh, to the, the next generation of, of scholars and next generation of practitioners and really giving them the best possible knowledge they can, can have as they go off into the real world and exercise all the elements of power and all the things that, that we're teaching them. And so it's, uh, it's a joy. Well, I know we, um, we're talking about specifically socialism versus capitalism. And so what do you think? Um, do we need to have more debates about this particular issue, especially with this presidential um, election coming up? I think so. I mean, I think this, I was very pleased to see both the morning and the afternoon debates. I think they were very spirited. I think they're largely a little pointed at times, but in a, in a good way. And I think that's, that's good. And I think, uh, you know, this, this school is founded on the idea that free inquiry and, and reasonable people uh, sitting down and, and, and speaking together can come to some broader recognition of, of truth. And mm -hmm. so I think things like this, more of them, the better. Yeah. And so um, with the Institute of World Politics, um, tell me a little bit more about the different uh, the graduates. Um, who, where do they go after this? What are some of the graduates? Well, we, we usually, uh, a large percentage of our students go into the government, whether okay. into the Defense Department, the State Department, the mm -hmm. intelligence community. Uh, we get a good number of, of contractors as well, so they'll go to the the defense contractors, uh, the government contractors. Uh, we do have a good number who also go into non-governmental organizations, and so that's that's always encouraging to see to see folks there as well. All yeah. right. well thank you very much, you. Dr. Marlowe, and um, thank you for um, IWP for hosting this here. Thank you very much. All right, I'm Carmen Tyler, and I'm here with Michael Anton, one of our debaters. And um, I'm going to ask you a little bit of a different question. Tell me about your fascination with the Machiavellian approach to men's fashion. Well, it was a, <laughs> a, a kind of a gag book that I wrote uh, in graduate school. I'm a 
scholar of Machiavelli, and I thought, wouldn't it be funny if he had written a book with the same structure and style except about this topic? And I actually, when I conceived the idea, didn't even necessarily intend to write the book. I just wrote a table of contents that I found funny. And then it took me years to write the book, and then another several years to get it published. And then you know it was, it was published, and it was a, a moderate success, I would say. I do still get royalty checks nice. for it every six months, but they're not whoppingly big checks. I understand. That's so good. That's fantastic. Now, um, I want you to talk to me a little bit about your time um, in the George W. Bush administration doing speech writing. Uh, well, I was there in the, most of his first term, so mm -hmm. 2001 to 2005, on the National Security Council. So present for a lot of big things, such as 9-11 and uh, Afghanistan and Iraq and, th and things like that. Um, I, you know, it's, boy, it's hard to sum up. Those were action-packed years. Um, but, you know, I was very uh, proud to be there. But also, over the years, came to some disagreements. Uh, it was a, you know, I, I was a supporter of the 2003 Iraq uh, invasion at the time and came to you know, see it differently over the years. And I look back on that now, and I think it's fairly clear that was a mistake. And so I've said that publicly and in print a few times, but the, not that I have any regrets about my time in, in the White House. I just think, you know, you've got you to learn, uh, learn from your experiences. Right. So um, with the presidential uh, debate coming up, all the presidential debates and everything happening, um, let's talk a little bit about Bernie Sanders and the socialistic idea. Do you think that America is poised to become a socialistic society? Uh, no, it may be poised to, uh, it, there may be candidates who want to try to move it in a socialist direction. I don't think anything like the full Bernie Sanders or Elizabeth Warren agenda will actually be adopted. But should one of them win, there's no question that they'll take American policy more in a socialist direction. But, you know, typically that wouldn't mean the, you know, the, the f more fulsome or uh, robust uh, socialism you might see in Western Europe, but it'll certainly mean higher taxes, a lot more regulation, a lot more interference in the economy, and maybe some things more radical than that. I don't expect you know, nationalization of big industries necessarily, though. Why do you think it's been such a, a firestorm with the youth or the younger generation, the Bernie Sanders and, and following him? And Well, I guess there are two possibilities. My debate partner would say, because they've all been indoctrinated by their teachers. Yeah. I think there's, <laughs> there's something to that. I don't dismiss that. But I also think that they feel left out. And they see their peers, they're, you know, they don't, it, it's not like it was in prior generations where you could say, I'm confident I'm going to do better than my parents, who I can tell did better than their parents and so on, or who look back, let's say, at their older siblings and they're doing great. And so when I get out, I'm going to do great. They see the opposite. They see, wow, my, my parents have maybe lost ground. My, you know, sister who's seven years older and got this degree and she's still paying off debt and it's, things aren't working as well anymore. And I think that's where a lot of it comes from. Right. And how can the capitalist idea help w out with that? Well, a, a, more, a more free market approach, what I argued at the debate is that we don't have a real, like, a, a purely capitalist economy right now. We have a much more oligarchic arrangement that arrangement is a kind of, you know, take from the middle, concentrate at the top. Um, and that puts me in a way to the left of my own party, the Republican Party, and my own movement, the conservative movement, because I would support a bunch of measures that come straight out of mid-20th century uh, democratic uh, politics, like such as tariffs and industrial policy and things like that, that would help that cohort and raise their wages and increase their wealth. Um, so, you know, you could call that capitalist, you could call it the opposite. Um, there would still be a free market, there would still be free companies, there would still be private companies and things like that. I just think the scale has tipped very, very far in favor of a handful of industries that have mass concentration of wealth at the top, and we need to tip it back in the other direction. Thank you so much Thank for you. joining us today. I have one last question. Is this a bespoke suit? Yes. <laughs>
course it is. Thank you so much, Michael. All right. All right, Micah. Sorry, um, Michael Utrich, am I pronouncing Utrich. it correctly? Utrich, sorry about that. Um, I want to talk to you a little bit today about um, your podcast for Yakuman Magazine. Tell me a little bit about that. It's called The Vast Majority, of course, taking the name from the idea that socialism would benefit the vast majority of humanity and spend most of the time uh, talking to people who have written for Jacobin as well as people who are a part of the uh, upsurge in the socialist activities of people who are running for office uh, as democratic socialists or people who have won for office uh, as democratic socialists. And uh, yeah, in short, soundbite, you know, half hour long uh, conversations. Got it. So um, which of the candidates, the democratic candidates, do you lean more toward and why? And also, why do you think that youth, uh, the generation, is really on fire about this uh, well, obviously, the most important candidate of this uh, upsurge in socialist uh, activity over recent years is Bernie Sanders, who's put this idea of democratic socialism back on the agenda and framed it in a way that m Americans seem to not find terrifying. They they uh, think that think that ideas about public health care or uh, tuition free college education and forgiving student debt uh, don't sound like immiseration uh, and, and slavery uh, and uh, uh, an undemocratic society, they actually sound like they would make life a lot better for people who are suffering under medical debt or an inability to go to the doctor uh, or uh, you know, having enormous student debt uh, and all of that. And so, you know, he's the most uh, prominent of that. But of course, we have people like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and uh, uh, Rashida Tlaib, others who are claiming this democratic socialist mantle and finding uh, success, electoral success in it, as well as changing the dialogue in American politics about you know things like the Green New Deal. I mean, just even having a small minority of people with very clear and unabashed uh, socialist politics has changed how we talk about some of the key issues in, in American politics. And I think in this next electoral cycle, you will probably see more people like them running for House and running for local elections and finding some success. Got it. Um, now, there's a lot of, of just debate over the definition of democratic socialism and the difference between that and social democracy. And I know not everyone can read the books or watch all they or go to school to learn all of this from I, the Institute of World Politics and have as much knowledge as you do. How do you teach people the difference between those because there are fundamental differences and, um, and, you know, define that for us. So social democratic countries most often are talked about the Nordic states, Sweden, Norway, as well as uh, so social democratic elements in France, even the UK. And uh, social democracy and social democratic policies are policies that put a check on the free market. You still have capitalists who are in charge of the economy, but you will not uh, be thr thrust into penury, uh, you know, around healthcare or housing. There's a strong social welfare state and social welfare uh, benefits, social democratic benefits. Uh, we think that those gains are important, that they shouldn't be diminished, that they made life uh, very livable and uh, dignified for millions of people. Uh, but that it's possible to go further, to expand uh, democracy uh, throughout uh, society in, in different ways to, to strengthen the social welfare state uh, and to, to create uh, societies where it is the vast majority of people who are in charge of those societies rather than this small number of capitalists who are still in charge. To take those principles of things that people like, of healthcare that's free, of higher education that's free, and expand it uh, into other realms of life and give people more control, more democratic control over their lives. I mean, that is starting to get at what a democratic socialist society might look like. Got it. And this also probably touches on the book that your upcoming book that you're having, right? That talks about going beyond Bernie Sanders. Yeah. So 
what is most striking about Bernie Sanders's campaign to me is not necessarily the the policies that he is pushing, although I think those are important. We can talk about those for a long time. But it's his insistence that his campaign can only be successful if it inspires something that is bigger than him. He doesn't say, elect me to office. I have the plans, and I will carry them out for you, and just you'll, you'll, you'll be able to just rest, and be, everything will be wonderful. He says, no, that my campaign has to be a catalyst for a broader movement. Uh, and so if it, you know, it seems like he has done that. Uh, he has sparked, uh, you know, new democratic socialist movement in this country. He's helped spark uh, kind of trade union militancy. And so, if in the years to come we see that both at the electoral level and the grassroots level, that will be the real legacy of his campaign. And that's why Bernie Sanders is uh, himself. It's bigger than Bernie, as, as the book is called. Uh, that he's going to. That he, he aims to create something that is bigger than just one person winning an electoral office, or even people uh, at, at other levels of government winning electoral office. It's about elections, it's about grassroots activity, and it is about a, a new uh, surge in the left wing in this country uh, that covers millions of people getting involved in the process, political process for the first time. All right, thank you so much, Mike. I really appreciate that. Uh, thank you very much. All right. All right, and we'll be back in another uh, little bit with another guest uh, from the Institute of Rural Politics. All right, I'm here with Nicole Ashoff. Thank you so much for being here. Um, now, I was looking up some information on you, and I was very fascinated on um, your idea of therapy culture. Do you mind talking about that? I know we didn't talk about that in the debate, but I'm fascinated. Sure. So, um, therapy culture. Do you want I can to hold. hold it? I can yeah. hold. It's fine. <laughs> um, therapy culture is uh, one of the topics that I talked about in uh, my 2015 book, The New Prophets of Capital. Um, and I was thinking, uh, in that book, I was trying to address um, some of the criticisms that um, people have of society today. And one of them is that people feel really alienated uh, and they feel sort of kind of spiritually, spiritually lost. Uh, and so one of the solutions is this kind of uh, self-care therapy culture, um, you know, this idea that if you just think positive and you, you know, rearrange your life and journal and, you know, really just manage yourself, uh, that you'll be able to overcome the obstacles and, and sort of uh, challenges of your life. And I, and I critique that, saying that while it's important to be positive and to manage your life, we have to also be cognizant of the external sort of structural forces that are uh, impacting our ability to succeed and thrive. I agree with you. <laughs> um, also, you were the only female panelist. <laughs> I noticed that too. Um, so um, do you consider yourself a feminist? Is there a new label now, a new type of feminism? And explain your definition. Uh, yes, I'm definitely a feminist. Um, but I think, you know, feminism, we still say feminist, but the idea of feminism is constantly evolving. And that's great uh, because we are constantly expanding our understanding of, you know, diversity amongst women and, you know, our ideas of what women want. And, you know, certainly no feminist claims to speak for all women, right? right. So it's this idea of actually building an inclusive movement and really trying to connect with other women. All right. And um, one other question. So, Females, do you think that we would thrive more in a socialistic society or a capitalistic society and why? Well, this is an interesting question um, because, and it's something that is debated a lot uh, in kind of socialist thought, right? This thinking about patriarchy and sexism as being a thing apart from capitalism or if it's uh, sort of 
part and parcel of capitalism. And so I think we need to really think critically. And I'm certainly of the opinion that, you know, the fight against sexism would take place in any society, whether it's capitalist or socialist. And that has to be, um, you know, part of the struggle. And it's an ongoing struggle, right, to think about that. It's not that if we got socialism somehow, which that doesn't even make sense either, uh, that, you know, problems of sexism would be uh, fixed, because of course that's not true. Now you mentioned you have children, mm-hmm. so you have do, yeah. two girls. You mm-hmm. said yeah. so. Um, how do you are you teaching them on feminism and how to be a woman in today's society? Well, I'm teaching them to be empowered, um, to read a lot, and to be a critical thinker, which includes challenging me. I'm um, constantly, uh, you know, encouraging them to uh, not just take what I say to them uh, at face value, and to also ask questions about you know, what they're hearing at school and to really just love themselves and to and to really have a strong sense of self and not worry so much about, you know, the kinds of dramas that are happening in the world around them, but just to, their job is to do their homework and learn and to have fun and, you know, that's the kind of environment we have in our house. All right. Thank you so much, Nicole. I appreciate that. Thank you. All right. Okay, Michael Gonzalez with me, and um, tell me a little bit about, um, you are a senior fellow at the Heritage Foundation. Tell me a little bit about what you do there. Well, I do a lot of identity politics. I do a lot of, um, I I write about nationalism, uh, but I also travel to Europe a lot, um, you know, and, and there's a reason for that. Uh, especially the countries of Eastern Europe, like the Baltic countries and Hungary, uh, they, they deal with this question of nationalities all the time. And in fact, there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of synergies between uh, those nationalities and what we now call minorities here, mm-hmm. especially when you go back to the, the root of how they, they, the term was created. Uh, so I, uh, and I, I, I write also a little bit on Asia because I, uh, I lived in Asia for many years. I lived there 10 years. So I, 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 cover, I cover a lot of ground. I have a book coming out um, in July. Uh, it's called the, 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 the Plot to Change America. It's going to be on, on identity politics. So I'm very happy about that. Okay. So um, do you think that we need to have more debates like we did today on the importance of knowing the difference between socialism, the different types of socialism, and um, capitalism? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I think that uh, the fear uh, that, the, the, you know, many that we talked about today in the debate of many millennials uh, actually saying that they're favorable to socialism, I think that is the, 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 one of the reasons for that is that nobody has really come along and explained to them, described to them what socialism is, mm-hmm. the, the constant failures of socialism, the fact that socialism, like uh, communism, has a perfect record of failure, has failed everywhere. Well, and I know that a lot of the young people are, you know, getting behind Bernie and they're getting behind the socialistic ideas. Why do you think that is? What What is causing that fire? Well, I think that uh, they've been indoctrinated by their professors. I think that uh, schools of uh, ed, uh, you know, the, the universities, the part of the universities, the departments where teachers are taught have particularly been taken over by the left. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that the academy in general and, and entertainment and the media uh, and now corporations have been taken over by a, a not just the left, but a cultural Marxist left. Mm-hmm. So I think that's all they've heard. This is the first generation that has been reared on a, a, a diet of, of Marxist diatribe. 
Now, you are also talked about being a Catholic, mm-hmm. and um, I'm a Christian myself. And where do you see uh, religion as being a, a part uh, and parcel with capitalism and versus uh, socialism? I mean, I think I think Christianity, all sorts of Christianity, are, is about choice. Mm-hmm. You can choose to do good, or you can choose to do ill. Uh, Christ gives you that choice. We're not robots, uh, and and that I think is is you know Western Europe. Uh, the West, really, Europe, the West in general, uh, the democracies, I think the reason there has been a success is because it is based on that idea of choice, mm-hmm. um, and which the other side does not have. You don't have a choice in, under communism. You got it. Thank you so much, Michael. We really appreciate sure. you being Thank here you. today. Thank you Thank very you. much. And we'll be back in a little bit um, with other guests from the Institute of World Politics. Thank you. All right, I'm here with Julianne Chinto. How are you today? I'm well, thank you. All right. Um, now, what prompted the idea of this debate? Uh, the truth of the matter is I said somebody has to pay for the fish. And, and what does that mean exactly? Uh, we were having lunch with uh, two of the directors of the Claremont Institute, a very lovely lunch uh, at a high-rise building in downtown Los Angeles. And because I have a taxi meter in my head, I said somebody has to pay for this fish and I have to figure out, uh, have to make this worthwhile for us. So I said, what about the idea of a debate, which we have done in other countries. And I said, why not? And they were responsive, responsive to the idea. So here we are. And what do you think is the value for right now of having this particular debate on socialism and capitalism? Well, I think it's sort of the answer to every question that's going on right now, whether it's Brexit. Brexit has become about socialism now, whereas it wasn't uh, a year ago. Uh, what's going on in the White House, I would argue, is about socialism. I feel like it's, it's, a, it's the left is pushing us always and every single regard. And by pushing, I do really feel strongly pushing because we uh, meet them sometimes halfway uh, and then they just push. So the, so the, I feel that the left is always uh, gaining ground and we never seemingly are. So the, the battle continues no matter what. How do you think the debates went? I think the debates uh, went well. I would like them to have been more debatey. The Oxford-style debate is not something that's very well known in this country. So uh, it was more civil here, uh, but less debatey than I'm used to. So. Now, you have a specific role. Um, you are co-founder of the uh, Imprimatur Group. And what does it mean, or the purpose uh, of cultural political consulting? Explain that for us. So yes, we are cultural political consultancy. Uh, the aspect, my half of the of the company, I do micro gesture analysis. So I work with politicians who either want to be elected or stay elected. It's the same skill set I have when I work with trial lawyers. I work on opening and closing remarks. Uh, so I bring micro gesture analysis so that they can effectively communicate. And uh, Michael Walsh, who is the co-founder of Imprimatur, he uh, weaponizes the principles of Western civilization and teaches our candidates how to best weaponize those and bring them to the audience. All right. And speaking of Michael, thank you so much, Julianne. We're going to speak with Michael right now. Michael Walsh. All right. So my first question is, why this debate and why now? Well, uh, communism is back in the news. Uh, it never goes away. We thought we had buried it 30 years ago when the Berlin Wall came down, as I spoke about today. And suddenly, we've got uh, plausible socialist candidates running for president of the United States. There's one uh, essentially running for prime minister in Great Britain. So we thought, let's have a fair, frank, uh, open assessment of what the socialist policies, especially as espoused by the young people today, Mm -hmm. what do they actually want? So we put them on stage today, and we let the audience make up its own mind. And how do you think the debates um, fared? 
I think they went pretty well. Uh, it's a little bit hard wrangling so many cats simultaneously uh, and, and keeping track of all the arguments. That on the one hand, you want a lot of interaction. On the other hand, you don't want it to break down so badly that it becomes a runaway train. So I think we, I tried certainly to uh, keep it as focused on the principal question as possible. And uh, next time will be even better. Right. Now, um, tell me a little bit more. Um, you did talk a little bit um, at lunch about the 30th anniversary of the fall of, of the Berlin Wall. Um, and specifically, you know, what you felt when you were there and actually remember you were talking about actually tearing down the wall. Yeah, that was uh, something I wanted to communicate to the younger people. 30 years goes by very, very quickly. Mm -hmm. uh, and so I was 40 when that wall came down. I'm 70 now. Uh, and, and I've seen that what appeared to be a done deal, the end of Soviet communism, uh, is now back because people forget. And what I tried to do in this, my talk this afternoon was explain how it felt to be there, mm -hmm. uh, what it was like in East Germany and in other communist countries, the, the, the misery and the the lack of hope and the just general forlorn nature of everybody. And we showed a couple of videos from East Germany at the time. So you could kind of see the, the rather poverty-afflicted uh, uh, lives these people had. And that was in a relatively prosperous Soviet country. Uh, and yet now everyone forgets and thinks that there's no consequence to socialist policies when, in fact, there are terrible consequences to them. Well, we've, I've been asking a lot of people about what they think the younger generation, you know, they are backing Bernie Sanders and, and Elizabeth Warren, who are more socialistic in their thought process. And so why do you think the youth are just jumping on board with all of this? Because they're youth. Okay. That's basically it. Uh, uh, you know, with age comes some wisdom, uh, hopefully, uh, but certainly with youth comes uh, oppor opportunity, uh, hopefulness, and a, a, a disinclination to believe the experiences of their elders from the past. We just sound like old people saying, get off my lawn. Uh, but in fact, uh, we and the generation above me actually uh, have experiences that need to be listened to and observations that can be counted or discounted, but ought to at least be heard. Right. And why did you choose the Institute of World Politics to host? Uh, I have a, a relationship with the Institute. Uh, I am a visiting scholar of cultural political history here. And I've given uh, several week-long seminars. Uh, and so when it came time for us to select the location, uh, Julianne had also been introduced to Dr. Lanchowski and other members of the staff. And we thought it was a perfect place. Uh, one thing that somehow didn't get mentioned today is that this building used to be a Soviet KGB safe house. Oh, we so, did talk a little bit about that. John and I, yeah. Oh, I'm so glad. No, yeah. Ahead, yeah, well, uh, so uh, I had so much experiences uh, in, during my period in Eastern Europe between 85 and 91, meeting KGB agents, CIA agents. It was all, uh, uh, James Bond movie is exactly how it was. Oh, Let me wow. just talk. Yeah, <laughs> was, that was my life for, for, for six years. Uh, but this building has a history as part of the Cold War, and so mm -hmm. we felt it was really uh, appropriate to hold it here. All right. Thank you so much, Michael, for all that you've done here and for the World Institute of World Politics and for hosting um, this debate very much. Thank, Thank you, you so Carmen. much. Thank you. And I'm Carmen Tyler with the Empanada Group. And um, we would also like to thank the Claremont Institute and the Victims of uh, Communism Memorial Foundation. And uh, of course, all of our uh, panelists, thank you so very much. And we're signing off. <laughs>